0: All right, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, again, Lord, we, we, we simply want to pray for our time together in your word today. We thank you for the subject, Lord, of protology and biblical theology. And we ask that you would inform our minds and our hearts, Lord, according to your word. Lord, we, 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 we resonate with the, the words of the psalmist today, Lord, that uh, we have seen the, the, the limit of all perfection, but your word is exceedingly broad. Lord, and uh, that is exactly what we're doing here. We're seeking to really plumb the depths of your law, of your word, and we know that uh, we can search these matters out for um, for all of our lives and never come to the bottom of it. And so, God, we thank you for how profound and rich your word really is, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So... um let us start with day six, huh? Day six is, uh, in, in uh, Genesis, is really the high point um, of the creation thus far. Uh, anybody know why it is really the high point? What, what's so special about day six? Created man. That's, what's, the, what's so special about man? <laughs> Looking around, I don't know what's so special about it. You know? Huh? Uh, not looking around at you guys. I'm talking, looking around what man, you know, does societally. You know, it's that's right. Is that uh, man was uh, created in the image of God? And um, this subject, if you want to do a really wonderful study, a um, uh, theology, um, really study out the image of God, uh, or what theologians call the mago. Day, right? Did I spell that wrong? Yeah. Know. You right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Something like no, that. Right? No, no, deep, no, 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 no. <laughs> right. <dead or> <laughs> That's right. Mago day. There we go. It did. <laughs> That's right. Um, obviously, <laughs> yeah. when you come just to the subject of the image of God um, from a systematic theology perspective, um, we know that the Bible has a lot of data to offer us regarding the image of God. What does it mean for man to be made in the image of God? A, a, a really profound question. Um, a really, really profound question. Uh, but but, what do you like, systematic theologians, or what, what have you guys learned so far in your study of theology uh, when it comes to the image of God? If someone were to ask you, like I'm about to ask you, they ask you, "What is the what does it mean for man to be in God's image? What would you say? Yes, sir. I would say that there are certain characteristics and certain attributes okay. that we have, right. have the capability of emulating. Okay. What kind of attributes are those called? Incommunicable. In- communicable. Communicable, communicable. communicable. yes. Yeah. That's right. It's the communicable attributes that we share with God. It's the incommunicable attributes that we do not share with God. Um, so that's right. That's that's exactly right. That that is definitely dealing with um, something that describes what the image of God is all about. The attributes. So that's kind of general or broad. Anything specific, Robert, that comes to mind? Um, no, I don't know where you. Well the attribute is attributes that's a broad. Yeah. What attributes? Right? Um, so we can speak. So communicate, right? We can communicate. How about? Uh, sure. all right. We can communicate, right? Like God. We can speak, we can communicate. That kind of leads us to another point, if you think about it. Yes, sir.: Yeah, Reason.: Reason. That's right. We can reason. We're rational creature, creatures, right? Like God. Um, he, create, he created us to be sovereign over the world, as He is sovereign. So, to exercise sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? Because we're all Calvinists here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, and 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 and. and you know, to say that man is sovereign, it's like, eh, eh right? <laughs> so, so what do you mean by sovereign? Does that mean man's in control of all things? You no, know, the cultural mandate that God gave us in the beginning okay. was to rule the earth. That's right. So sovereignty more in the realm of? Dominion. Dominion, dominion. that's right. Right? It exercises his dominion or his rule over creation. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, right, is also in keeping with the word sovereignty. Sovereignty does not just mean predestination or something like that. Sovereignty also speaks of uh, God's rule, right? Anything else about the communicable attributes of God that come from or that are embedded in the image of God? What else? To love. To love, to love. that's right. Right? The ethical, right, which is the... The non-perverted version. Ah, uh, that's wrong. <laughs> that, well, that's right, that's right. That's right, was It was originally in. Right, there's the ethical dimension, right, of man, as well, which is the capacity to love, right? To be kind, to be gracious. But all of this is kind of expression of love. So that's a good, that's a good fun, foundational judge. ethic. To judge. to judge? Well, that also comes along with reason, right? The ability to judge, to be rational, to make rational judgments, all of those kinds of things. Okay. And so a lot of this, uh, theologians, what, they, what they've kind of done is that what they've looked at is that there is structure. Uh, Right, There is structure and there is function to the Imago Dei. And so theologians struggle with what is really emphasized in the Bible. Is it the structure of man that is being talked about with the Imago Dei? Or is it the function of man? By structure, what they're talking about is really something that has to do with the uh, ontology of man. Right? with respect to his being, who he is, what he is. Alright? Is love something that man is, or is love something that man does? Is man love? No. no. So it's it helps to put it that way, right? Does man perform love? <laughs> so that would that would fall into the functional aspect of the Imago Day. You see what I'm saying? Is is man um yeah, is man sovereign? Is man reason itself? So that's why they, they banter back and forth. Um, uh, you know, and how about this? Like God, man is spiritual. Is spiritual what man is? Yes. This falls under the ontological or the structural aspect of the Imago day. See that? And so Anthony Hokema, great theologian, uh, I think says it best. He has a book entitled Created in God's Image, and it's all about biblical anthropology, which is, biblical anthropology is what? The study of man from a biblical perspective, right? So Anthony Hokema says both, you know, theologians, I know they like to fight, (laughs) but really it's like, why are we pitting friends against, you know, each other, Right? These are not at odds with each other. They actually are kind of the two sides of one coin, right? Man is, and the Imago Dei, is pertaining to what he is ontologically and what he does functionally. Uh, that is absolutely true about the image of God. Um, now, with regards uh, to biblical theology, I-, I think that what I'm going to focus on more than anything is going to be the functional aspects of the Imago Day, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to talk about man really um, as the image of God, because I think that what happens is that you see that 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 what he, the image of God is is largely defined at least in the Genesis text based on what he does, right? And we've already alluded to it: the fact that he has sovereignty, dominion, and this is embedded in what's known as the Adamic commission, right? The commission that God gives to Adam, to, 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 to take sovereignty, to take dominion, to rule, right? To, 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 to guard, to keep, right? And then in the garden, he's, he's, he's to, to guard the garden, to keep the garden, to tend the garden, uh, which is really fascinating. We'll get that, you know, eventually when we get to the actual Garden of Eden, we'll talk about this, but the language that's used there in Genesis is actually consistent with what's used with the priests and how they were to guard the tabernacle. Uh, that language is, is there. And so um, what they're saying is that when a Jew picked up the book of Genesis and initially began to read through the pages of protology, what he found is that Adam was and did have priestly duties. Really interesting. And that shouldn't be uh, uh, surprising to us because as early as Genesis chapter 4, already you have the descendants of Adam uh, 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 offering up a sacrifice and, and apparently knowing what the concept of an altar worship is and all of that. Well, that's... That's, that's all pertaining to the priesthood, right? So it's just really amazing. So what is going on in day six? I've broken it up into four different components or four aspects of this, okay? Number one, the creation of subhuman life, uh, verses 24, 25, which really pertains to what is not the image of God, right? Uh, what is not the image of God? And then, number two, the creation of human life as the image of God, verse 26, and then we also have the Adamic Commission, which is uh, uh, verses 27 through 28. And then last of all, and I'm not going to get to all of these, but last of all, verses 29 to 31, the irenic conditions of the pre-fall world. Uh, in other words, what, what we get a glimpse at here in, at the end of, of, of day six is that the world is flourishing in the conditions that God made, Right? And, and, and how do you know that God wants us and wants to remind us of these sort of uh, irenic, peaceful, uh, paradisical sort of state of affairs? Why, 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 why does God want us, how do you know God wants us to bear in mind that everything is functioning in this way? Right? In, in a state of flourishing, in a state of goodness, in a state of blessing, right? How do you know that? Because it's very good. That's right. That's right. The very good language is a pronouncement of divine blessing upon the creation of God. Right? So uh just fascinating. You see what's going on here though? Number one, let's uh let's take number one and 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 just talk about uh let me get rid of all this. Any questions or comments or statements so far? Anything to do with the Imago Day? We're gonna try to develop this more and more as we go along, but um, just for right now, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. What did I say? 24, 25. 24, 25, and the creation of sub-human life. Right, that's first, right? At the very outset, then God said, Let earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts... Of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. So, so what happens is that we're going from uh, the original conditions of chaos, right? And, 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 and at the beginning of Genesis, where the the, the earth is what tohu bavohu, it is formless and it is void. Right, That becomes, and I've pointed this out already, but I'll point it out over and over and over again, uh, the condition of formless and void, listen now, becomes a redemptive historical theme in the Bible. Does everybody know what I mean by that? You know what I mean by that? Huh? Lynn, what do you think? You I, that through again. What's that? Run that. <laughs> the, 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 the idea of formless and void, that becomes a redemptive historical theme in the Bible. You know what I mean by that? Relating to our depravity and sin, and sure, lost in darkness. Sure, sure. I mean, you personalized it, you know, on a personal level, and of course, it always goes down to a personal level. But yes, ultimately, this concept of formless and void is going to be developed, and this is what I mean by redemptive. Historically, it means it takes a theme out of the Bible. This is what the Bible does; what the authors of the Bible do. They take this concept of tohu bavohu, formless and void. And they take that and then they, if you would, what I like to say is that they blow an eschatological wind upon it. They use it for eschatological purposes. So not surprising to find that in the prophets, they use the language of formless and void to relate to the conditions of Israel under, let's say, Babylonian captivity. Amazing, right? And, and, and they're doing that to show that, that, that what has happened in a condition of sin is that, in fact, the people of God have now gone into a state of decreation. Things are reversing. You see the same thing, for example, in the Exodus, right? In the captivity of God's people in Egypt. Guess what you have in the, in the plagues of Egypt? You have a decreation. And it's, as a matter of fact, if you look at the plagues, I don't have it here, I'm just this is just off the top of my head that I'm remembering this, but it's a good example. And that is that, If you look at the Exodus uh, account of the plagues, it goes down the line of the same order that you find in Genesis. Uh, So what happens is that in Genesis, God attacks uh, the skies, he attacks the water, he attacks the earth, and it's all in the same structure as the Genesis account. Now I'm giving you a very rough (laughs) <laughs> I'm giving you a very rough overview there of, of what theologians have developed extensively to show that what's going on in Exodus is a decreation. Think of it as, as just as a great unwinding, you know? Ever seen those movies and, and somewhere in the movie they do like a reverse picture, right, everything, it goes back, right? That's kind of what's going on in these apocalyptic visions and these apocalyptic episodes, these, these eschatological episodes, is that God is talking about how this, the, the, the light of the, the luminaries of the sky, of the space, that you look up into the sky, no longer give their light. The sun no longer gives the light. The moon no longer gives the light. The stars no longer give the light. Well, what does that remind you of? Exactly what Genesis is talking about. Mm-hmm. Under a blessed condition. You see that? Under a state of blessing. So what's going on on day six is that we reach the pinnacle of God's creation. And what happens is this, is that there's a correspondence of days. So you have day one, you have day two, and you have day three. And these correspond, each one of these has a correspondence, right? In day four, day five, and day six. So what's going on is that Initially, you have a reference to light and darkness, right? And on day four, you have a reference to filling up uh, the, 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 the sky so that God puts fixtures, luminaries in the sky of light to separate the light from the darkness. So this corresponds with day one. In day two, you have the creation of sea and sky, right? And then what happens on day five is that God creates uh, birds for the air, and animals, or or mammals for the sea. You see that? And then, in day three, you have the creation of the fertile vegetative earth. And then what happens in day six? God creates to fill the vegetative earth with animals, and ultimately with man. Okay, so what's going on is that the earth is going progressively towards a state of greater and greater fullness, greater and greater flourishing, greater and greater blessing, until we arrive at the pinnacle of day six, right, where it is very good. I think when it says it is very good, what it means is that it's almost like it's complete. It's full. It's, fi- it's almost like it is fi- It's a finished uh, uh, thing that's going on here. Okay. Um, just to show you, so let me read this because I want you to get this. God is taking the creation from a waste place to an inhabitable land. Now, I I know for me, when I read a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, there's so many references to the land, the land, the land, the land, the land, right? And a lot of times what happens is theologians fight over the land, (laughs) right? Is the land to be fulfilled literally through the nation of Israel and the geographical location in Palestine, in this world, or in the millennial kingdom, right? They, they, they get into these debates, but uh, it, it's really not so much that we get into that debate here as much as that we see that the land is absolutely analogous to the creation, that the promised land, Canaan, is, is, is has a, a relationship to the, the beautiful land that God made in Genesis chapter 1, right? That, that what is Canaan to be but a reflection of Eden, I guess that's one way we can put it, right? And so when judgment comes, let me read to you a passage. Turn with me there. Ezekiel 36. When you read a passage like this, what you find is that when God aims to take his people out of a perilous place where the nation once again has been reduced to some sort of waste place, guess what the authors do? They invoke the language of creation right so ezekiel 36 verse 10 says this i will multiply men on you now notice already the protology language there multiply right that's not by mistake (laughs) that's actually that's that's on purpose that's a theme that he's reintroducing all the houses of israel all of it and the cities will be inhabited and watch this and the waste places will be rebuilt. Literally, the tohu will be rebuilt. That's what he's saying. It's the same language. I will multiply on you, man and beast. What does that remind you of? Mm. And they will increase and be fruitful. What does that remind you of? And I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly and will treat you better than at the first. Thus, you will know that I am the Lord. He is the <laughs> Lord Yahweh. He is the creator of all things and he is their redeemer. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. So this is just one passage. There's many others. Isaiah 13, another critical text that is kind of a parallel to this. The same exact thing. If the authors go back to the days of creation where God filled the earth with man and beast as a sign of blessing, and that is how the prophets use day 6 of creation, at least partly, use it theologically, right? So we, we read the day of creation, we're reading day six, and we're like, okay, we're, you know, we're reading with a scientific mind. Again, we, we come back to apologetics, trying to refute evolution, and so we read day six in that way to, start to say, oh, this is, it had to be the conditions, there was a dome over the earth, the atmospheric pressure was higher, and blah, 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 that's how dinosaurs lived. <laughs> so, and that's right, there's a capacity for that. But isn't it amazing when we ask the question, yeah, but how did the authors of the Bible use this? How do the authors of the Bible use day six of creation? They're not using it to refute evolution. They're using it in a redemptive historical fashion to communicate an eschatological vision of restoration. But every vision of restoration is ultimately and finally completed when and where. New heavens and the new earth. So these are all this – is, this is why redemptive historical hermeneutics is so important because what, when we get to Revelation 21, understand that on the way to Revelation 21, we have been developing these themes all along the, the progress of Revelation all the way to this point, right? And then finally we see, oh, we well, see the final fulfillment of it all. Exactly. You can do the same thing with the image of God, right? You see the image of God. You see what happens to the image of God. You see the, 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 the destruction of the image of God. It's marred. It's distorted, right? And then you see the promise of the image of God being restored. And then you see Jesus, who is the image of God, right? And then guess what? Then he gives birth to image bearers who are being renewed back into the perfect image of God, right? Second Adam. What's that? The second, Adam. The, second the, last Adam. the last Adam. That's right. First Corinthians fifteen forty five. the last Adam. Um, so much stuff going on here so any questions about any of that I think it's fascinating I don't know about you um, maybe I'm my biggest fan I don't know I think it's, it's great to see the connection between Genesis and Revelation that you've touched on previously uh-huh. The will connection between the two books uh-huh. August's Photology mm-hmm. it's really encouraging I, good for you I yeah. don't know if you're going to read um, Ezekiel 36-33 but read uh, it it has a lot to do with what we're, with what we're talking yeah, about yeah read it and it says thus says 33-35 uh, through 35 is equal 36. Thus says the Lord God on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. So still going on the same theme uh, from the creation, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and the waste desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, that's a, and, and what you find is that exact pattern repeated over and over. It's repeated in Jeremiah chapter 4, same thing. Isaiah chapter 13, same thing, over and over again. This theme is, is, is used over again uh, for this very purpose. And, and I love it because as a Christian, you know, you can come to these Isaiah uh, passages, you can come to these Ezekiel passages, you can come to these Jeremiah passages, and you really sit there and go like, what in the world does this have to do with me? Right? Well, if you understand redemptive historical hermeneutics, then you understand that all of those promises that are embedded there are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, your Savior. Which, in other words, because you're in union with him, (laughs) it has everything to do with you, (laughs) right? So this is just encouraging how it's like, wow, this is talking about Christ and his people. This is talking about me as a Christian. You see, this is what we're talking about, what we talked about very early on in our study of biblical theology, that all scripture is Christian scripture. Right? Um, Okay. Subhuman life exists to serve man's interest. And that's correct. The whole purpose of this creation is to serve the interests of man. Man is, as the image of God, God's representative on earth, He is is there as the pinnacle of creation. He is there as a sovereign. He is there, I I would go so far as to say, is that Adam is actually a priest king. And that Adam and Eve were the first kingdom of priests that were given delegated authority to rule and govern God's earth. Uh, And you see that um, in many different ways. Um, One of the ways that you see that, for example, his authority, his sovereignty. Anybody know how, like how would you say like, that you see the sovereignty of Adam, the authority of Adam. A dele- remember, we're talking about delegated authority. Uh, and really, it's what theologians would say, that Adam is God's viceroy, right? His, um, uh, another way you can put that is that he is his vice regent. Now, what, are that, what is that language talking about? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, sir? As, a, as an ambassador, a representative of, of God to the creation. Yes? Or just an instrument to cultivate and, and multiply. and, um, and uh, He definitely does these things. Right. But, but real quick, what does the word viceroy or viceregent Say mean? A king and a, and a representative of the king. Correct. A viceroy or viceregent is a lower king who has authority given to him by a higher king. Right? And so God, the great King of heaven, is giving delegated authority to his 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 kings and priests on earth, Adam and Eve, to exercise dominion on his behalf as what as his image you see that now why why do you think it's important for Genesis to speak of this let's let's get down to genesis um Uh, verse 26 here, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So right there you have um, God saying, let us make man in our image. Now I know, I know that everybody wants to debate the Trinity. And do I what is what is this saying when he, he uses the plural here? Let us. I believe it is a reference to the multi personality of God. That it is a multi personal God from the outset. Um, I do not believe this is referring to either angels, and I do not. It's, I don't believe it's just using the what's known as the plural of majesty, which means that he's speaking in you know. Uh, in majestic terms, the way that it, uh, you know the way that kings customarily do, we declare to the you know something like that. I, I don't think so. I, that's not the focus of the study. But so, just for clarity, I do believe it is the Triune God that is the one being uh, referred to here when it says, "Let us make man in our image." Right. The reason why you can eliminate a lot of the other things too is because then later on it's going to say, "In the image of what." In the image of God, He created them. So angels are out out of the question, yeah. right? I mean, anyway, that's um, that's that's the way that I would say What's that? Amen. Amen? Okay. Good. <laughs> that's right. Um, okay. Let's let's get into some of this. So, um, it is customary for uh, in the ancient Near East, and we talked about this. Remember. Ancient Near East is very important for your study of Genesis. Any good commentary that you get, any good commentary, is going to give you some interaction with the ancient Near Eastern literature because it gives us a little bit of a contemporary corpus, you know what I mean, a body of work. That's going to show us kind of the mindset of the ancient man and, what, how, what, and how he thought. And there's a lot of parallels, guys. Listen to this. There's something you have to grapple with as a Christian, uh, especially as an apologist, as an evangelist. Let's say you go out to, uh, to the colleges and then you start explaining to people out of Genesis. say, oh, those, those, that exact myth is found in, you know, the Illuma Elish or whatever. You know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or, you know, there's Mesopotamian, Babylonian myths that speak of the same thing that you find in Genesis. And you know what? They're right. There is a lot of, a lot of ancient Near Eastern literature that parallels what's going on in Genesis. What's the difference? Well, the difference is ours came first. <laughs> right? You can't go back any further than the first man. Amen. That's what I like to tell people that, you know, bring competing religions and of course, their mythology is full of all kinds of wild, you know. Talk about mythology; it's it's filled with wild sort of mythology. It's, it's it's they they themselves viewed it as mythology. They didn't they didn't view it as actual history that happened. You see what I'm saying? Whereas in the Bible, we know it is a historical document among other things. So that's important. But one of the things that people have pointed out is that. In the ancient Near East, it was customary for kings and deities in some of the mythology that after they had constructed a temple, they would place their image in it. Um, G.K. Beale talks about this very thing. Uh, let me just read some of this for you guys. Um, this is, I think it's Beale. What was really neat about this is I actually found this the evidence of this in several authors, Desmond Alexander, G.K. Beale, and also Alan Ross. And I think it's important because these are all men coming from different theological backgrounds. Alan Ross being more uh, influenced by dispensationalism, G.K. Beale, Presbyterian, Desmond Alexander, I don't know what he is, I think he's Anglican or or something. But uh, they all give evidence of this and they cite all sorts of amazing source material to, to substantiate that very thing. Um, let me see I don't want to get too ahead of myself G.K. Beale says the notion that Adam was set in a sanctuary as a royal image of his God is an ancient concept found outside of Israel the following examples of this show how natural it is that the images of a God are placed in a temple right after it has been constructed so what were we saying earlier about Genesis that God is building a cosmic temple right because what you find in Solomon's temple and in the tabernacle is allusions back to the creation. Remember the last one that we talked about was I think it was first Kings chapter seven? It talked about that in the courtyard of the tabernacle there was the earth and the sea that was represented there. Even the even the, the, the labor that was used to wash for the priest was actually called the sea. So, the tabernacle is definitely being identified with God's cosmic order. It's amazing. Right? Any questions? Anything at all? Any insights? Anything? i sorry, I never had thought about that before with, you know, Adam, the image, you know, and the image of Adam, you know, him being in the garden. Yeah. schools, they put pictures of the founder. <laughs> it's funny. Right. You know, like, we still are doing that, but why? Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> yeah, and and, and so, what is God saying when he puts his image in his creation? What is he trying to communicate by doing that? It's that it's very good. That's right. It is very good. Anything else? that is not the idea of the deist... That he's separate, that he's heavily involved in his creation. Oh, that's a good. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, I wrote down something similar to that because I said that God, uh, you know, on day six, unlike all the other days so far, on day six, God actually put something of Himself in the creation. You know what I mean? And what is He putting of Himself in creation? You say, well, He's putting His image, <laughs> right? What's that? The inbreeding, the breath of life. The breath of life. The hand-made creation. What does creation reveal? The creator. His glory. His glory. Yeah. That's right. The reason I want to touch on this issue of glory is because the image of God language in the Bible is always connected to the concept of glory. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just to kind of flesh out some of the theology of the image of God as we see it spanning through the Testaments and what happens. Okay. You know this. You know this passage. It's kind of a common one. 2 mm-hmm. Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse four. Right. What a triumphant passage! It says, "In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the Im- unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel." Watch this. Of the glory of Christ, right? Who is the image of God? Right. Uh, Uh, Some people kind of make a distinction between, well, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God, right? The exact image of God. I think there's something to be said to that. He is the true image of God in the truest, fullest sense. And notice how close the association between the glory of God and the image of God, the glory of Christ and the image of Christ. So what is God putting in the garden? What is God putting? Well, remember, we're... We're in uh, chapter one of Genesis, right? Chapter two of Genesis is commonly known as a closer look, right, of day six, the creation of man, and he expands and enlarges enlarges upon what happened at the at the point that God created man, because Genesis chapter one doesn't give us all the details; it just kind of gives us an overview, and then chapter two is going to give us an in-depth look at what happened when God created man. So what is it that God is doing when he puts man in the garden? When he puts his image in the garden, he is putting his glory in his temple. Mm. Which is an amazing concept to think about. Especially when you think about the fact that it's ultimately speaking of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know. Um, uh, okay, let me, let me just keep reading here, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as, bo- as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one... So, so, so Look at verse 6, right? Immediately an echo going all the way back, an allusion going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. For the God who said let light shine out of darkness. (laughs) Where did he do that? Genesis chapter 1. Is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face. And there, I would say in the face of Christ... Is almost synonymous with in the image of Christ, in the presence of Christ, right? In the glory of Christ, the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe, how about this one? First, you don't don't turn there, but I'll just read it to you because it's quick. First Corinthians eleven seven: For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. And they're focusing on the fact that image and glory are used interchangeably, essentially synonymous statements. They're held in apposition to one another, which apposition just means they equal the same thing. Image, glory, same thing. They're the image, glory of God. What is God putting in the garden? His image, his glory. <laughs> that which will be a reflection of who he is. is that amazing? Any questions? Really statements? Trish, you're well, you're the one that keeps, you you, keep, you do something with your hand, but you don't go all the way. It's like. I know. And then I saw Jonathan. Yeah, that's probably something better to say than me. I was just going to say. She's that, like. I was just going to say that. That's why, <laughs> that's why when we you know when we lie, we're not representing. our image maker. Right? When we steal, we're, we're supposed to be that representative. He's not a thief. And so. That's right. We represent the wrong one. we trust in the or whatever. We're Correct. Just, I think it was jo- I think it was John Murray who said that sin is the contradiction of the of the uh, glory of God. And great uh, greater betrayal it is for a viceroy to misrepresent his king. Exactly. So what's going to happen? I'm going to show you this, Lord willing. I'm going to show you how this exact scenario. So so what are we looking at here? Let me let me just go up since we're we're pretty much pretty much done. But let me just go up to remind us. Okay, for example, just in case you're lost. Which if you've been here for any length of time, you're probably not but anyway. Say so what we're doing is we're studying protology. Right? Proto no protology. You know what I'm talking about. And we're we're doing it in three parts. We're doing it creation, which by the way, I will tell you, my dear brethren, the creation part highly neglected among biblical theologians. Why do I know that? Because I've got Dozens of books, and my wife says, you got another book? You know, I got another book on biblical theology, and I just thumb through it, and I just crash through it, and I look at the index, and guess what? Very little on the days of creation. Mm-hmm. Maybe an illusion here or there, that's it. Ah, very, that's very unfortunate, in my opinion. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is we're going from creation to fall and promise, okay? Which is new creational language, right? So what we're going to find, check this out, is that in the Bible, you're going to find a repetition of these things. You're going to find that God's vice-regent, his representative, whether it is Adam, whether it is Noah, whether it is Israel, whatever it is, is going to continue to go down this path of creation, fall, promise. Creation, fall, promise. God's going to bring, bring the people in a new creational fashion out of Egypt, out of Assyria, put them in the land, faithfully plant them, give them all of these promises, and guess what? They're going to fall, they're going to go to Babylon, and they're going to need to be restored through promise. Right? That's right. But where does the vicious cycle end? When is the vicious cycle going to end of God's representative falling, being created, falling, right? Christ. Christ. Christ, who is the last Adam, the final representative, the vice-regent, the viceroy of God, right? He is going to put an end to the vicious cycle of, of, of the representatives of God who continue to fail him by fulfilling God's covenant promises and ushering in truly a state of righteousness, new heavens, new earth, wherein dwells Second Peter chapter three eleven righteousness. I think it's verse thirteen. Anyway, <laughs> that's right. You see, that's right. <laughs> you know. Okay, guys. Well, uh, let me just pray for us. We'll go to worship. Okay. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy today. I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to encourage us as we continue to just briefly look at these things in protology, that we'd encourage our hearts to just to see how vast and beautiful your word is. Encourage us, Lord, as we look upon the Savior and his work. In Jesus' name, amen.